Welcome back to the 430 Movie. We got our expert programmers here to curate Fantasy Theme Week's of classic film from 1998 film directed by Steven Soderbergh called Out of Sight yes Soderbergh directs it with such a sort of confident self-assured style Lex Luthor in Superman what is it about Gene Hackman that uh... his performance it's off the charts but still in reality fiendishly gifted 1981 Sam Raimi Opus The Evil Dead oh yes fine choice Sam Raimi invented entirely new ways to get shots that should not have been possible with the amount of money that he did not have charade oh directed by Stanley Donnan it's a textbook screenplay it's just effortless and there's not a wrong note in this movie can't say enough great things about it we'll be back next Friday with an all new episode of the 430 movie wherever you listen to podcasts join us now for the 430 Movie. The 430 Movie Podcast is available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And if you're a fan of this podcast, you already know the 50-year mission is the definitive oral history of Star Trek. And Secrets of the Force will tell you everything you want to know about the history of Star Wars. But what you probably don't know is Ed Gross and I have a new book coming out this July. They shouldn't have killed his dog. The complete uncensored ass-kicking oral history of John Wick, Gun Fu, and the new age of action. Coming from St. Martin's in hardcover, digital, and audio. You can order it today. Sundays on Electric Now. Tune in to the official Leverage Redemption After Show, a very distinctive podcast with me, Yell Teagle, and my co-host, Felicia Michelle. Each week, we'll be breaking down another episode of Leverage Redemption. Plus, we've got exclusive interviews with the stars, as well as some games, and we'll even be showing off some amazing fan art. So after you watch Leverage Redemption on IMDb TV, you'll definitely want to join us here to catch all the Easter eggs and behind-the-scenes fun. The official Leverage Redemption After Show, a very distinctive podcast. Sundays on Electric Now. If you like listening to this podcast, you'll love watching us on Electric Now, the free video streaming app featuring video versions of all your favorite Electric Surge podcasts, along with full seasons of The Librarians, Leverage, the exclusive Leverage Redemption After Show, as well as Flash Gordon serials, hysterical comedy specials, and much more. Download it today from your favorite app store or watch us on Roku, Stir, DistroTV, Zumo, Sling, or Plex. Welcome to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we explore interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. I am your co-host, Josh Miller, and with me, as always, is Mr. Steven Scarlatta. How are you doing today, Josh? Oh, I am doing good. How about yourself? Beautiful. Uh, We have a a double-sized episode today. Not only are we going to be talking with Mr. Steven Romano about some unmade phantasm projects he worked at, this is also a backdoor pilot to, um, I don't know if it counts as a spinoff because we're not the ones spinning it off, but our podcast network, Electric Surge, is doing a spinoff of our podcast focusing on TV called Best TV Never Made that is going to be hosted by Mr. Peter Holmstrom and Mr. Ryan Matsunaga. Hi, guys. Hey, how's it going? Hello. Thank you very much for having us here. Hey, what's like spinoff? You're giving it to us or sure, sister show you know. or alternate timeline? <laughs> the successful kind of spinoff, though, like Frasier. This isn't yes. this isn't going to be the go. Joey of uh, a oh. spinoff podcast. No offense to Joey fans out there. We don't know that yet. <laughs> 
Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but just tell us a little bit about yourselves and uh, your your big big plans for best TV never made. Well, uh, my name is Peter Holmstrom. Uh, I also host the uh, Trexports Briefing Room podcast on the Electric Surge Network, and uh, I'm a screenwriter. I'm also an author and written some nonfiction books on uh, Star Trek and working on one right now on the Star Wars franchise. And uh, Ryan, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, uh, Ryan Matsunaga, friend of Peter. I uh, work in the comic book industry. I work at a publisher called Boom Studios, but always been a really big fan of movies, big fan of TV, and uh, Peter invited me on to the, join him on this project, and it sounded extraordinarily exciting. So I'm very, very happy to be here. I like how the number one thing you say is "friend of Peter." That's obviously that's, yeah. that's <laughs> my resume. Have you seen it? It's, it's the top it's section. Yes. Friend, Peter, and that's it. Yeah, and so this podcast. I mean, for me, uh, being in this industry, I'm always so fascinated when you see an article on Deadline or something that announces a project that sounds super exciting, and then you just never hear about it ever again. And, and I always wonder just whatever happened with that. And I, I've loved your guys' podcast for so long and find it such a, a infinite resource of, of just inspiration and knowledge of the industry. And I thought like, well, what can we, can we bring that same sort of thing for television? Because there's so many uh, wonderful and amazing projects out there that, that we've just never heard much about. And there's so much to learn from those, from those stories. Um, I think uh, as Peter and I were ideating on this, uh, on the show, we were just realizing how much volume of material is generated just constantly that never sees the light of day for TV scripts, pilots, treatments. Uh, and there's just every single one of those is a what if type story. And every single one of those feels so intriguing on the page. So I think we really just uh, enamored by that idea of being able to explore those stories and dive into those what ifs from the uh, TV side of things. Especially, I mean, I think it's changed a little bit recently, just as there's so many more outlets that function differently than the classic you know, network TV model. But, you know, as we always say in our podcast, for every movie that gets made, there's probably like a hundred or more that don't get made. The one difference between movie and TV is some people were trying to get all those movies made and then they like fell apart. The old TV network model was basically like they would just green light a bunch of pilots and then like pick a couple. Like yes. it wasn't even necessarily like, oh, the financing fell out on that TV show or, you know, or we lost the rights. It was just like, well, we can only do two. And we just kind of made a bunch to see which ones we liked the best. I, just, I feel like that must have been such a demoralizing factory to be going through back in the day. But truly, I mean, especially when you're dealing with a high profile franchise where you think like, oh, we, we shot a pilot. We shot a Wonder Woman pilot. Obviously, it's going to go forward. <laughs> this is yeah. going to be great. And, <laughs> and then uh, uh, it never, never sees the light of day. And uh so yeah, we're gonna find those stories. We're gonna find those those uh, fantastic what what ifs of of television and and dive into them. I look forward to your inevitable episode about the recent attempt to relaunch Tremors as a TV show with Kevin. Bacon. <laughs> oh we're, yeah, we're, we're they spent the a lot of money on that pilot. <laughs> I actually kind of liked the Tremors TV show that they did make that had Hank from Breaking Bad on it, but I know they made that's one. me. Oh yeah. Interesting. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> let's get to Phantasm and intro our wonderful, I assume wonderful, I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt, guest Mr. Stephen Romano, uh, who I do think can qualify as a real jack of all trades. You've done comic books, novels, attempted TV, I guess we're going to talk about with Phantasm. No, actual TV, because you did a Masters of Horror episode with Mr. Don Coscarelli. Movies, you've done it all, it seems. Uh, how you doing, Mr. Romano? Hailing from oh, I'm great. I'm, Austin. I'm great. I, I'm 
Austin, Texas. Yes, that's right. Sorry, I spoke too soon, but I am wonderful. I just want to add, you are correct. <laughs> I'm totally wonderful. Um, thank you for having me on. It's nice. It's been. I feel like a rock star and stuff. <laughs> um, well, before we get into your origin story, just because I feel like for you in some ways they're somewhat a little bit linked. I know not entirely. Uh, I figured maybe just talk about. We're gonna be talking about so many different phantasm projects that that may be interesting to just kind of gauge where everyone what is on their phantasm fandom. I mean, I always loved that they can just do fan p h a n. You for me, I think the generic story that they, I saw pretty much all of them on VHS. I didn't get to see any of them in the theater until you know they would remaster them or play them at the new Beverly out here. Um, and I probably saw Phantasm 2 first, uh, went back and saw the first one, loved them both for in the same way that, you know, I feel like it's weird to compare Alien and Aliens. They're such different movies. I don't know why one needs to be better than the other. It's kind of just whatever mood you're in. I was going to the 80s was a real good decade for making sequels that were that were very different from the yes. original. <laughs> for, uh, <laughs> Texas Chainsaw 2 <laughs> kind of had the same thing of what if it's kind of a oh, comedy yeah, now? Yeah. Uh, oh, all yeah. of them felt like they should have had Bruce Campbell in them, even if he wasn't making movies <laughs> yet. Uh, just had Hello. that vibe. Prom Night 2. There yeah. you go. Another one. <laughs> oh, I love that movie, though. Mary Lou. It's Prom Night 2. Oh, uh, how about you, Steve? Oh, that's an amazing. But it wasn't actually prom night too originally it was called the haunting of hamilton high and what happened was they finished the film and they all sat around drinking scotch in the bar across the street after the first screening and went what have we done we have to, we have to do something. <laughs> let's slap a new title on this and make it a sequel to prom. but it's still amazing yes mm-hmm. i think that, that's I mean, because darcy was at the prom too that one i do um, like better than the original i do it's, too it's, it's a completely different movie you know so it's, it's kind of apples and oranges in my I love movies that start off one way and then get that sequel title. Didn't like one of the the curse move the Will Wheaton series curse movies start off as something different than get a curse oh, subtitle? Probably. And I have I, a list I, I somewhere. Would, I don't know for sure. But the first one was a hodgepodge in and of itself. You know that Lucio Fulci directed part of that movie, and and it's it's weird because it was a, a movie originally directed by the guy that played uh, Charlie McGee's father mm-hmm. yeah Fire david Spider. keith not it's such a yeah. weird with credit keith david right? <laughs> yeah and then and and what was it was ovidia Asininis who who did uh, beyond the door and tentacles and everything and they put the movie together and then they brought in lucio falci to do the special effects sequences because it was partially being shot in italy but but the reason why keith got involved was because he had a farm they could shoot the scenes in america ah, yeah. i didn't know that <laughs> it's crazy so i mean i wouldn't be surprised if the sequels were just a uh, just a complete cluster fudge of various things that got thrown together you never know you just uh, never know lesson to be learned for those aspiring filmmakers out there if you want to get your first directing job own a farm <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> and that was yeah. the color out of space that was the first version yeah, of the color which i didn't know for decades uh that was lost yeah, on me as a yeah. kid a lot of people discovered that when the richard stanley film came out yeah yeah because it was originally called the farm and that's i love that about the movie it has that italian feel because there's maggots in it and all that stuff you don't normally yeah. don't see in a yeah. american horror films 
It's pretty big. The, and the meteor crash is just so surreal. It's just like this weird globe that kind of sort of lands and it, and it, and Fulci totally directed that, which is crazy. I mean, I had, huh. Yeah. You could tell workman. Guy. Steve, Absolutely. how about you? Where, where, when did you first encounter phantasm? Uh, let me see. I was, I, I was trying to find in my files, which movie, which curse, what was it? But anyway, I'll skip that. That's another thing. Uh, <laughs> so I got totally off track there. <laughs> no, no, I, I made a list of movies that, that were supposed to be one thing and then they got sequelized because I'm fascinated by it and I can't find it. But anyway, it's not what this is about. But um, <laughs> oh, no, Phantasm, it was, was, was uh, I, I probably saw it when I was 10. I rented it. And the then first the first one. Yeah. And the version I rented started off with um after he cuts off the tall man's fingers and he's walking down the stairs and the jawas come after him that's where the video started and so for a couple of years i was like there's no opening credit there's nothing that's where the vestron video started whoever the hell put it out and then yeah i swear to god and then a couple of years later I, i rented it and then it was the full movie and so it was like a couple of years before i was able to see the beginning and end and it was weird it was like uh yeah. And so, um, yeah, it was a terrifying movie for me because um, there was that TV movie that came out called Adam about the kid that was kidnapped and killed. And um, around that time on my block, a van came down the street and tried to kidnap three girls into the van and the girls Whoa. ran to a neighbor's house. And so when I first saw so I was always freaked out about going outside because I was terrified of that van. And so when I saw a phantasm for the first time, it's about this freaking man trying to grab this boy and throw him into his car. And so phantasm scared the shit out of me as a kid. And then one day my dad came home. My dad used to always come home, open his trunk. He had fireworks, all kinds of shit. And then one day he came home, he dumped on the kitchen table a bunch of survival knives because Rambo came out. And then I remember <laughs> I, I grabbed one and I used to like keep it on me to go to the video store. And a lot of that was because of Phantasm because of Mikey's the lead, right? That's the kid's name. Because mm-hmm. I was around his same age. He was such a badass movie. And I was like, he has a knife. I'm going to carry a knife with me. And I just, I keep it since concealed on me and I'd ride my bike to the video store. So he kind of helped me phantasm away, kind of helped me like, you know, not be afraid of the van, which I was totally afraid of, but Didn't yeah, inspire that... you to become a guitar playing ice cream man. <laughs> I did not. <laughs> <laughs> that was Reggie though. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Peter, how about you? Anyway, That's my phantasm intro. <laughs> yeah. I, I have to confess I'm a bit uh, late to the party here. It was, it was just a few years ago that I watched phantasm for the first time. And it was uh, as part of the uh, Joe Bob Briggs uh, Christmas marathon that he did on. Uh, oh, Shutter, yeah. is... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love that Joe I, Bob gets that... so mad in the sequels of them, he like really destroying does. the car. <laughs> actually, like... That. He made all of that up. That he did, they just didn't have the rights to phantasm too. That was all of us. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, please, please let us not steal your thunder, Peter. <laughs> no problem, no problem. But uh, it's funny. Like I've gone back and actually watched because he had actually shown Phantasm two back in like the nineties on his TNT uh, Monster Vision show, and he was pissed then too. It's just it's been a running joke with him that he's so pissed. Uh, listeners in Phantasm two, they destroy a uh, Hemi Cuda, which is apparently one of the most valuable cars of all time. That's no reason not 
the show Phantasm 2 Marathon. It's one of the best movies <laughs> It's a fantastic movie. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that's when I, I first checked them all out. Uh, I did love them, but uh, I also love the fact that even uh, Joe Bob Briggs was like, these movies are batshit crazy. And I'm like, oh, if he says that, 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 that means something. So I've um, been, a, been a fan ever since. Ryan, how about you? Yeah, I also uh, came to Phantasm in that uh, VHS era. I think I saw it very, very young for the first time. I think I was maybe five or six the first time I saw it. So way, way too young to really appreciate it. But just young enough where that I think very specific mix of the abstract horror, the surrealist horror and that like literal horror kind of burrowed my way into its, or its way into my brain. And I think my memories of Phantasm are way better than what Phantom actually is. I feel like I've been chasing that high through all the sequels. I love all the sequels. They're all fun. But man, I've really been chasing that high of like what it felt like as a five-year-old to watch Phantasm for the first time. Well, so you grow up with the the ball, the sphere, you know, like is kind of just ever present in, you know, Fangoria and just like ads for when it's showing on TV. And I think it's also a classic thing if you're a kid, you know, because that was kind of like that was Freddy's glove. Like that was kind of how the franchise was sold. It was always Angus Scrim holding a ball. And then you see the first one and it's that kind of weird thing of like, Where's the ball? And then there's finally the ball. And then you're kind of like, why aren't they bringing the ball back? Uh, so I, I thought it was interesting that as the franchise went in, though, they really, you know, uh, they leaned into the ball, you could say. They balled up a little bit. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, you know, he makes a point, Ryan, uh, which is really good, which, which is the idea of the mystique of Phantasm, the, especially the first one has an almost random dreamlike quality and then not just what's happening in the movie, but in, in the filmmaking itself. I mean, there are several scenes in there where they're, they're dreaming and they, these weird things happen and they never wake up and they just cut to some other scene happening. And it's like, it creates this really great sort of almost art film quality. The first film has, and the memories that, that I had growing up with it as a child were, were that I saw it first on black and white television in the early 80s when it was edited for television and i didn't care for it too much because i wasn't getting the whole movie i wasn't getting the whole effect and then i rented it on capacitant electronic disc this was video discs back in the oh yeah the video day. yeah those were those were records that that that, that skipped just like records when well, they looked like a giant floppy disc uh for yes. younger people who Absolutely. remember what a floppy disc even is <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a big damn cartridge that you slid into this big damn machine and it went ka-chunk. You felt like you were really working hard to get your entertainment, right? And then you pull it out and the disc was in the machine. I watched Phantasm for the first time in 1983, all the way through uncut that way, albeit I had to make a side change, but still. I got to tell you, I, that memory of watching it for that first time in color, you know, all the way through uncut, man, it just blew my effing mind. I was just like, I had been I was stunned, especially by the ending of it, which is this kind of it's a fairly typical horror movie fake out ending where was it a dream or wasn't it? It's a dream. Oh, no, he's really there. You know, blah, blah, blah. Some people think Nightmare on Elm Street kind of ripped that off, too. But I think they're very different films. But that's a whole other discussion. Um, I, I Ryan, I just I just grok you on that. And I'm just I'm just I just feel like, yeah, we're kind of in sync on the memories of that we had on childhood informing our adult opinions of what these films really mean to us on maybe even a subconscious level. Because when I became an adult and I turned 18 and I went out in the world in 1988, that was when Phantasm II came out in movie theaters. And you don't even know 
the excitement that raced through my blood when I went to see Rambo 3 in the movie theater and they showed the trailer for Phantasm 2 <laughs> in front of it. I was just like, holy, ah! and, and there was, they were balling up too. There was a lot of ball action in this movie. They show it all in the trailer too. Apparently, according to Don Coscarelli, who I spoke with many times about all of this, you know, they wanted to show the ending of the movie in the trailer. And he was like, no, 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 no. You can't do that. You can't show the ending. So he shot an alternate version of the ending that they stick at the end of that trailer, which is why it's different. If you watch the trailer, you can see oh, it. I got to rewatch it. Oh. A different version of the ending, which Don specifically made for that trailer. And I kept waiting for it to happen. <laughs> and, and some other version of it happens at the very end of the movie. But anyway, I was, you know, my adulthood and my childhood were colliding in this really weird way because Phantasm 2 is a totally different kind of film as we mentioned, sequels that are very different and so on. And uh, well, that all just burned together in a magnum flash and changed me forever. So that's where I'm coming from when it comes to Phantasm. And uh, I guess just getting a little bit more of your origin story, how did you how did your like career really get going before it ended up kind of merging with your, you know, Phantasm fandom, as it were? Well, I, I come from very weird... <laughs> miscreant family of rock and roll people and artists and strangers. <laughs> I grew up in, in Houston, Texas. And my father was a blues musician and we, we hung out with people like Billy Gibbons and Stevie Ray Vaughan and, and uh, Lyle Lovett was a friend of ours, Lucinda Williams. Um, I, I, I am dropping names, but I, but I was, <laughs> but, you know, that's really what was going on. You know, and my dad never really achieved that kind of fame, but he wasn't a bubblegum rock band in the sixties called the fun and games commission. So take that oh, with a grain great, of salt. But great like, band so I grew up in this weird uh, artistic family and I, but I never, I, and I had a band and everything when I was a teenager, but I, I really wanted to get into filmmaking and films because of things like phantasm because of movies like aliens. I saw aliens 36 times in the movie theater whoa i really? wanted to see i wanted to see it 38 times do any of you nerds know why i wanted to see it 38 times in the theater because of the scene where lieutenant gorman says he did 38 combat drops i wanted to be able to say i'd seen the movie 38 times but i don't know what prevented that last two times of seeing it i was obsessed with that movie 1986 was a glorious glorious year um and so, yeah, you know, I wanted to be these things. Unfortunately, I didn't have the grades. I didn't have the money. I didn't have the anything to really go to film school. So I just moved to Austin in 1988. I got a job at a pancake restaurant run by a friend of my father's who was in a jazz band with him in the 1970s. And I just threw my fortunes to the wind. I made my first made for video movie when I was 19, which will never be discussed again. <laughs> and it made me never want to make movies again because your first film always does that. And uh, I got into doing audio comic books for Image uh, off of that. Started directing actors, were, you know, talking and doing things that were better. Um, and uh, wrote, started, you know, writing novels too. I published, self-published my first novel in, when I was 27-ish. And I did some graphic novel work. You know, I actually hooked up with this guy named Sean Lewis who was working with Bob Murawski and Sage Stallone who had just started Grindhouse releasing and they they got together with Quentin Tarantino and they were they were putting out the beyond in movie theaters and somehow or another we talked them into letting us have the rights to do a comic graphic novel of that which we put out at the end of the 90s so that was a good calling card and I had a few other things like that going on and I started working with the Alamo Draft House doing film events I had written a few screenplays for hire. I'd done some pretty impressive work up until that point, but I hadn't gone to the next level. 
then what happened was I, I met Reggie at a film festival, Reggie Bannister of the Phantasm films. I met all those guys except for Don. And we invited him, uh, invited them to come down to Austin to do a film festival. And I knew that Don was going to be my guest. And so I did the Rupert Pupkin thing, you know, <laughs> I, I, I said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to totally psycho fan on this guy and try to get work if I can or work with him on something because this is the creator of Phantasm. And I knew that he owned it all. That's the thing about Don is that he owns all the Phantasm stuff. He never let it go. He sold the Beastmaster, but he never sold Phantasm because he knew it could be valuable to him. And it was. And I knew he had those rights. And so in addition to, to promoting and creating this film festival, which we did in, in, uh, in the year 2000, it was April Fool's Day. I also wrote three full-length pilot scripts for a proposed Phantasm television series, and I pitched them to Don. And after you know some fancy footwork, because they always back away from you slowly when you do things like that, um, <laughs> I was able to get him to read them. And uh, I, I got him to read them, and, and, and he really liked what was in there. And then we ultimately, we adapted into a comic series, and then it got back into into making, adapting it into a feature film, which was called Phantasm Forever. And then part of that became the inspiration for what eventually became uh, Phantasm Ravager. So, you know, and, and in addition to that, I was writing a whole lot of other things with Don. We did a, we did a remake uh, for, for New Line Cinema, which I was involved in with, uh, for a little while. We did a bunch of other projects. Don really believed in me. He was the first guy in the actual movie industry who, who gave me my, my manhood. <laughs> if you will, you know, he, he, he really believed in me. He hired me to work with him and you're working with your hero who you, you, you know, you, you watched all these, I mean, I mean, he, he was sick of hearing me talk about, you know, how much I loved Phantasm <laughs> too. You know? I mean, he really was. And, you know, when, when we brought him up for that film festival, we showed all four Phantasm movies in pristine 35 millimeter prints at the Alamo draft house. And, it was all back midnight screening or so like what? once a day. We, we had three nights. We had yeah. Phantasm the first night and we had, we had Phantasm two the second night and Reggie played a live music set in front of it, which was amazing. <laughs> and, and then on the third night we did, we did three and four back to back in 35 mil. And, you know, Don told me after that it restored his faith in those movies that he that, that that he really that he was really happy to watch them with with fans in a theater like that. I mean, people came from all over. There were there were tall man groupies who came to offer themselves. <laughs> to, to I'm not kidding. Who would? Really <laughs> yeah. Uh, was it? Yeah, was so that it was the, really it was fun. Was that the was premiere it? of Phantasm Four you did there? Say again. Was what, that the what, premiere what of Phantasm Four you guys did at that event? I, I want to say that that Phantasm Four had been in theaters somewhere because he had a thirty-five millimeter print of it. Maybe he had shown in a couple of theaters just so they could say it had a release or something. But oh, I see. As far as I know, it was one of the only actual screenings in a theater of that movie. Oh, wait, and, what am I uh, saying? It came out in 98. I'm sorry. Yeah, so it was already out by then. But that's so dope. Yeah, it nice. was for a while. Yeah. But, but it I, I want to say, it had, I think three and four did have some kind of brief theatrical life, but it couldn't have been shown in more than a handful of theaters because most yeah. of those are known as only movies. Yeah. Oh, that's such a cool... And that's so awesome, man, to meet him there and then to have that relationship with him after. That's so cool. I can't stress strongly enough the 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 whole 
the whole way you do these things. I mean, you got to get to know the guy. You got to you got to make friends, and you got to you got to want to be friends with them too. It can't be disingenuous. And we did become friends. And he really liked what we were doing. He liked what I was about. He saw my comic books and my scripts and everything. He thought I was very driven. We did the whole program book for fan, for the Phantasm Film Festival, which was called Phantasmania. <laughs> that was Tim <laughs> Lee's idea. <laughs> um, this was back when Tim was actually running the projectors at the Alamo Draft House. Oh, wow. It was pretty amazing. Yeah, no, it was one theater in Austin. And it was not the big franchise empire that it is now. And Tim and I would just get together and put on these punk rock shows. And this was one of them. And yeah, you know, the, the, we put the program guide together in a comic book format and Don really liked that too. And so we, first, what we did with those phantasm scripts I did was we sort of adapted them into a comic series, which only got one issue, unfortunately, but it would have been a four issue series. But then of course, all that other stuff happened too. The real takeaway from my relationship with Don, again, was working with him on all these different projects. And of course we worked together on, on Masters of Horror, which became the real thing that we're, that's gonna be chiseled on our tombstones is what we, what we did together. <laughs> that, that, that project was my trial by fire and my re-entry into filmmaking in, a, in the most brutal way you can imagine. I mean, shooting that movie in Vancouver was just a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> but we did it. We pulled it out. We wrote a really ambitious script and we managed to do it. I was at Don's side the entire time. He took me into his confidence throughout the whole making. I mean, writers don't get that. Usually you turn your script in and then they say, go away. We, you bothered me. But like he, he, I was standing at his side when he yelled cut in action on every single shot. And he consulted me on the, the music and the editing and everything. I mean, who, when does that happen? You know, that's crazy. That even happens on the Lifetime movies that I write now, too, because that's kind of my gig now. But, Wait, but, and, uh, and but yeah, that Masters was, of Horror was that that was the first episode that aired, right, of the series? It was, remembering it was, that? Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't the first one originally intended to air. The, the John Landis one was filmed first. Um, and then Argento came in and shot his episode. And uh, then we shot ours third. And, and, and when, when Joe Dante, when I talked to Joe Dante a several several months later, he he told me that the horror stories about us were ubiquitous. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you mean? You guys really made enemies up there, man. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I I, I want to dig into all of your um, uh, phantasm projects, but maybe I uh, just building up to that and some more context for the listeners. I know uh, Steve and Peter and Ryan, you guys got some info on um, just the franchise and other unmade Phantasm movies before Mr. Romano got involved. Uh, yeah, I guess. Oh, I'll yeah, Roger Avery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I'll start off. Um, yeah, just usually give uh, the listeners like a little history. I'll do that really quick. And then Peter, you can jump in because I know you have a little bit more notes sure. than I do. Um, <laughs> I went a yeah. little overboard. I'm sorry. No, I never go too overboard. No, it's all good. I just have some dates. What the uh, listeners so, crave. Yeah. yeah. So Phantasm, and I took some of this from the Phantasm website, uh, some of this from that Phantasm Exhumed book and some from Don's book he wrote. So uh, Phantasm 1977 principal, principal photography started on, phantasm one and then it was released in march 28th 1979 and it did very well um and a sequel was announced actually in 1980 
Um, but uh, Peter, do you want to jump in with any other Phantasm yeah, facts? I mean, it, it, the, the big thing to to point out here is that Coscarelli was 21 years old when he was doing the original Phantasm. And uh, <laughs> on a budget of like basically $300,000 total, uh, mostly financed by his own family, but it, it went on to gross uh, $12 million worldwide. Um in 1979 dollars which is a chunk of change and you know what i find so fascinating about coscarelli and i think this goes to um what steven uh romano was talking about earlier is like uh the entire franchise is is creator owned essentially right it's it's all owned by coscarelli and i think that in a way ties into his his kind of it feels like he has a strong sense of loyalty to the people he works with like when you look at the original phantasm you know, obviously it's an indie film, so there's not a lot of big names involved. But then in the sequels, you could have recast, you could have brought in bigger names. Um, they do recast the the lead in Mike at the behest of Universal. But then in the in the third film, they bring in they bring back the original kid, you know, the kid from the first one. They bring him back to be in the, in the third one. And I think that just goes to, uh, to it, it's worth pointing out in terms of the, the scope of this franchise is that it's it's never a Tom Cruise kind of film. And that's because I think Coscarelli is like, well, this is Angus Grimm is the tall man. That's what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, well, you, know, he, one, he, you know, Tom Cruise is not involved with those movies, but he almost cast Brad Pitt as Mike. In part two. Yeah. yeah. There's a famous audition tape that floats around on the Internet from time to time. Ooh, in my dreams, man. It's pretty cool. That would have been pretty. Yeah, that would have been interesting. Because <laughs> uh, I know Josh is a big fan of cutting class. I am. Cut, also, I think it's Brad Pitt. It wouldn't be an episode of our podcast if that title hasn't come up. So, from the writer of Excalibur. <laughs> Was it really? That's from the direct, or the, it's directed by the writer of Excalibur. It was actually oh. written by the guy who created that Nickelodeon show, Salute Your Shorts. Fun fact. <laughs> Crazy. But but yeah, 1980, Phantasm 2 was announced, but he would go on to do the Beastmaster and then a Dio video. And uh, and then... Uh, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, but um, what was weird was I was listening to... I, I didn't realize that Phantasm 2 was kind of kept secret when it was like it. I, I didn't really check to see if it was officially announced, but according to the Phantasm Exhumed book, it was kind of kept under wraps. Like the script I have for Phantasm 2 is called Morningside. It's not even called Phantasm 2, the screenplay I had that's for pretty typical, that, That's a pretty typical Don Coscarelli and just Hollywood in general thing. What they'll do is they'll they'll call it something else so that word doesn't get out. And I've dealt with that many times on films that I've been involved with. Um, in the case of Phantasm II, what was happening was Don was making Survival Quest at the time, and he had just finished wrapping the photography on that. And then Universal came to him and said they wanted to do Phantasm II. So what he did was he put the, the post-production of Survival Quest on hold. And when he made, he went and he went and did Phantasm Two. And uh, as Don does, he 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 just devoted his whole attention to Phantasm Two. Uh, but yeah, the title was was different because uh, because of security reasons. Yeah, and it's pretty nuts. Though I don't too. think that would keep fans away. They'd be like, "We're going to call Return of the Jedi Tatooine. No one will figure it out." <laughs> they <laughs> called it thing. Blue Harvest. When yeah, they were exactly. <laughs> yeah, and so uh, yeah, with uh, 
they started shooting Phantasm Two in December 1987 for originally an August 19th release, and then that, which is ends up the day that Elm Street Four came out. But then they pushed, according to Don's book, they pushed the they pushed it to July 8th, 1988, because Universal had a movie dropout of it. Um, and then I have the box office here, but Peter, is there anything else you want to fill in before I get to the box office box office uh, for Phantasm 2? Not too much. I mean, it's worth pointing out that Phantasm 2 has a bit more of a linear structure to it. Phantasm 1 is very dreamlike. It doesn't quite as as steven was talking about earlier it doesn't quite make sense um but uh phantasm 2 is a bit more of like a beginning a middle and an end to it and uh in a way it it it, if the first one is is kind of trading off of kind of a haunted house almost story like a ghost haunting story this one's a bit more of like a road trip uh action adventure element to it still with plenty of horror and still with plenty of, of dreams and such like that but it's uh it's a bit more uh there's a lot more action and, it, and, it introduces Reggie's. Yeah, I was gonna say Reggie's double double barrel shotgun, yes. <laughs> quadruple barrel shotgun. Yeah, it, originally it, it it had a slightly more dreamy quality in the first edit, and they ended up taking all of that out and made it very linear. It's a great example of the of the eighties and Joe Lynch's audio commentary for Wrong Turn Two, which is worth checking out. Um, he talks about the 80s horror sequels and how they were very flashy and, you know, very like they always had these really cool title sequences at the beginning of it and stuff. And that was that's totally tributed in, in the wrong turn too. just uh, just as a, just because I'm sure you, you were totally tortured without knowing all of that. <laughs> <laughs> I do now, like but, wrong turn, too. Yeah, but it was it was pretty cool because I was a Fangoria kid and i remember each i remember that one fangoria cover with the tall man with the freaking oh, yeah. oh, the, yeah. oh my god i was i was so hyped i did get to all see, melting and everything yeah. yes i was so hyped for this movie i did get to see it opening day we were like the only ones in the theater we went to a matinee and then i went to see license to drive after it but i remember being i remember i remember going to see it and i remember being so shocked at how like because i was i remember we brought some people with us we're like oh you'll be fine you know because sequels you normally don't need to see the first one or whatever like friday 13th or halloween and yeah they were lost completely lost watching the movie and i was like yeah this shit's like really picking up from the first movie like yeah really like this is the godfather two of uh yeah it was weird horror movies that was the concept that, that, that really got done energized about wanting to do a Phantasm 2 in the first place was picking it up right where that cliffhanger ending on the first one left off, which was, a, I think, a dream that he had. I think he told me that at one point, that he, he dreamed that the movie just kept going. And yeah, it was pretty exciting to, to see that in the theater. Yeah, it was it was pretty awesome. That's one experience I won't forget. And it, unfortunately... It opened in ninth place, which I didn't realize. With uh, three, it was... opened in ninth place. Oh yeah, yeah, it didn't do well at all. Yeah, it, which it, is such it, a it shame. Crashed. Yeah, so coming to America was number one. Who Framed Roger Rabbit was number two. Arthur on the Rocks, that was the first week of release, was three. Big Bull Durham, License to Drive was number six. Short Short Circuit Two came out the same day, was number seven. Crocodile Dundee 2 was number eight. Sorry, I love doing this. And then number nine, <laughs> number nine was Phantasm 2, 
like fucking Arthur yeah, two beat Phantasm. Wait, did you? Wait, you said you saw Phantasm two and then immediately watched License to Drive? Is that what yeah? You said? I had to. <laughs> <laughs> I was a kid. <laughs> you're, you're like, I need my Corys. Yeah. I was a I was a kid, you know. And then um, the following well, that, week, that was the summer that was dominated by by Nightmare on Elm Street Part Four, The Dream Master. That was the big horror movie of that of that summer and i saw that four times oh, but i wow. saw phantasm seven times so i don't feel too bad <laughs> no that's pretty awesome i i did i wanted to see four so bad but but what a trip that originally was supposed to come out the same date as Fanta as nightmare four so maybe it just i think it was just bad luck of the summer draw maybe if it would have came out that that like halloween maybe it would have done better but um, I think it maybe wasn't the right summer release, possibly, because it's a great film. And then the following week, it was in 14th place. And, uh, and then according to his book, Don's book, that they took it out of the theaters in two, week to, two weeks to put in um, another universal picture instead. So it kind of got sacrificed, according to his book, which kind of sucks that it, you know, it didn't. It Wait, what did they replace it with? I think it was Midnight Run. It looks oh, like well, that's a good movie. At least. Oh, wow. <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't name it. That. <laughs> he doesn't name it in his book. But I went and I looked a couple of weekends ahead. And that's what I saw was a universal picture that came out a couple of weeks later. So I'm just I'm, I'm I could be wrong, but I'm just, you know, trying to put together the puzzle pieces. That was a pretty but, big hit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. I mean, yeah. So I think it was just bad timing for that movie because I love that film. I love Phantasm, too. Um and then it's one of the best in the series. Yeah. I yeah. love the look of that film. Darren Okada's photography in the movie is so great. It's mm-hmm. so different from the first movie. It has a very, very big glossy feel to it. And um, uh, of course, it got slaughtered by every critic that saw it, unfortunately. But, you know, it, it's got so much atmosphere. And uh, it was the first movie, well, not the first movie, Texas Chainsaw 2 was the first, but it had a chainsaw fight in it. <laughs> and 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 George oh, yeah. or Cosmatos, you know, referenced it in Mandy too. There's a, there's, a, there's a there's a shot right out of Phantasm Two where the guy pulls out a chainsaw about this freaking long, you know, and <laughs> and, uh, and it's like, oh, that's right out of Phantasm Two. And sure enough, in in many interviews, Panos Cosmatos is like, oh, I love Phantasm Two. It's great. It's one of my favorite movies. <laughs> oh, that's so rad. Oh. Uh, yeah. It's also it's worth pointing out, too, that like as Stephen was just talking about, the the scope of Phantasm 2 is so much bigger, too. Like the first one, it takes place in one town. It's a very contained story, whereas in the sequel, it's a road trip. They're going all over the country, but they're also saying that they're tracking the tall man and they're following like a wake of bodies, essentially, like like the, the tall man is active beyond just the story of Mike and Reggie. And uh, I have a quote here from. I have a quote here from Coscarelli talking uh, to Starburst magazine before Phantasm 2 comes out um, in a July issue, which he's quoted as saying, I'd always imagined we'd do one where everyone knew the tall man. In both pictures so far, nobody knows about him or what he's doing as far as the general population goes. I was thinking of doing one where uh, he takes over a large region of the countryside, somewhere you couldn't even get into, perhaps some kind of plague zone, which I think is just really interesting given that like, because Phantasm is a creator-owned property, it, it, you know, when when you guys are talking about other film sequels or other, you know, proposed projects like a Star Wars film or a James Bond movie, it's like 
there's a beginning to to the to the sequel's life, and then there's usually an end point. Like there's a point where the project's just dead and buried, and and you know people are just not talking about it because of NDAs or whatever. But like with Phantasm, the, these sequel ideas keep living and keep coming up every few years. So I just found it fascinating that even in '88, Coscarelli is thinking about like, what if we this eventually becomes like a post-apocalyptic movie where just the tall man is just everywhere and it's just like a plague zone type scenario. So I just found that really interesting. He always told me that he, he always told me that he felt like that was too too big to go for the second time. That he needed a step up to it to get it there. And there are some epic shots in Phantasm too. Just the shots of them just driving, you know, like mm-hmm. out over those beautiful countrysides and everything. It, it really it, it's a subtle way of making an epic movie, you know, because it's not it doesn't have like a thousand extras in it or things like that. But it but it it feels much bigger than the first one, and it it's got that idea that the tall man is coming to your town. You better watch out, you know. And I asked him also why he said it. He set the movie in Oregon, and he told me I've never been there. <laughs> well, it does not look like uh, uh, just outside of LA. I'll tell you that. Yeah. That's, that's where they film all of yeah, it. But it does not look like Bakersfield. <laughs> a fun, fun trivia thing is that when we made when we made uh, a Masters of Horror, we were trying to decide what the license plate was going to say on it, and we decided to make it Oregon as a tribute to Phantasm too. Nice. That's oh, so cool. I think uh, something I found so fascinating about that quote that uh, Peter found is just how how interested uh, Don was in the idea of scaling this franchise. Uh, even back then, I think we obviously saw Phantasm one to Phantasm two. There's quite a bit of a a scale increase there as well. But like that idea of like a post apocalyptic world ending catastrophe type uh, tall man story was just rattling around his brain, and he kept coming back to it over and over again uh, in the other uh, projects since then. But uh, I'm really just fascinated with the idea that even even when he was making Phantasm, like that idea that this could be gigantic uh, was always kind of back of his mind. Well, and it's funny because, and it's interesting that as things have evolved, just like, you know, over the course of my own lifetime in film fandom, now that doesn't sound that weird that a director would create a popular film franchise and stick with it. But that was really weird back then. You, I mean, especially for horror movies, because most filmmakers would admit they don't really like horror movies. They just made it because they thought it would sell. It did well. And they just like fled the genre as fast as possible. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, John Charpenter has made many great horror movies. He likes the genre. But, you know, he kind of begrudgingly made Halloween 2 and then sort of was involved with the three, but like had no interest in like really building upon the franchise famously it's just like cool that don it was it almost felt more like an author you know like i've created my novel series and i'm going to keep advancing it and digging deeper in the mythology and expanding it um yeah. and, it, and it's part of what i like about four even though you know it has its limitations it's a little slow i it's just so cool what he was able to do with the like deleted scenes from the first one to like weave together this new story that i feel like that is definitely a film that appeals only to the super fans of the franchise. But if you are a super fan, it's really interesting and like kind of rewarding in a way that often the horror movies like this are not. No, absolutely. I agree. But but let's face it. Let's face it. Was Halloween really ripe for an epic reimagining of some sort? I mean, Phantasm has so much more 
going on in terms of metaphysical implications. The idea, the thing I was the most fascinated was the idea of, of the dreams of how that all works out. Why did he wake up and it was all a dream at the end of the first movie? Is there something going on here that we don't know? You know, and they, and, and they always keep their cards so close to the vest, but you could do a lot with that. And you can do a lot with the idea of, of a great, a, a weird titian with an army of monsters, you know, ravaging city by city. I mean, that's just really cool. You know, mm-hmm. that's yeah i like that a lot that world Plus, building out got those guys in the gas mask they all look so creepy <laughs> i love that Great. i think that that world building aspect is so fascinating uh it, it always felt a little uh twin peaks to me in, in the way that it doesn't beat you over the head with the lore and the world building and the the systems of it but it, it always just feels like it's right there around the corner like you just turn the corner and you discover this gigantic world and all these details of how it works and and the backstories and all of it I think that's really what's kept it uh, so fresh in my mind all these years. I think the producers of Supernatural would agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, Pete has in his notes the unproduced Phantasm 3 treatment. Do you, do you know when this... I mean, Pete, you could talk about it if you want. I, I'm, I'm not too sure. I have uh, the notes when Phantasm 3 starts, but do we know when that treatment was written by any Yeah, and my understanding is, and this comes from the, the uh, uh, Phantasm Exhumed book, um, is that this came out... This, this was done before Phantasm 2 came out. So this was done like in the lead up to its release. Um, and, you know, I think Coscarelli's hope was that Phantasm 2 was going to be very successful and, and then they'd be able to make a bigger one. Right. So this one is, is called Phantasm Three into the Wasteland. And it's just treatment featuring um, essentially what he was just talking about with with the uh, with the quote there, where it's it's much more of a, of a plague zone, post-apocalyptic type story. Um, uh, and because of the, the lackluster success of Phantasm Three or uh, excuse me, of, of uh, Phantasm Two, um, the idea for a Phantasm Three gets scaled back and uh with the hopes of then like if a third one comes out and it's successful enough, then we can do a bigger one with a potential fourth one. Uh, I should also just say, because we keep mentioning it, Phantasm Exhumed is a a cool book written by Dustin McNeil, uh, who also wrote um, Taking Shape and Taking Shape 2 about the Halloween franchise. And that has a bunch of unmade Halloween Halloween movies on it. He's a guy we'd actually love to get on the podcast talking about Halloween specifically. Uh, anyway, sorry, continue. Yeah, then that's where my next couple of notes comes from his book as well, is that May 17th, 92, uh, Reggie Bannister told The Weekend of Horrors that um, Phantasm 3 will be, you know, he announces Phantasm 3 with Baldwin returning to the role. Was, what's his Baldwin's first name? I'm so sorry. Mike, or- Michael, yeah. Michael Baldwin. Yeah. Oh, okay, sorry. I'll, I'll yeah, everyone was going by their, like, real names. And it was, okay. it was like... Uh, <laughs> curb your enthusiasm or something and then everyone's sort of playing themselves michael's real name is is abbreviated with an a which is in front of his credits now it's a michael baldwin and as he first told me when i first met him you will never in a million real-time years guess what that name is Hmm. angus i was about to say (laughs) <laughs> and I know, I mean, that's not ironic. You won't. I mean, he told me, but I'm not telling. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was hoping it was Angus. Of, uh, yeah. Phantasm. Yeah. That'll be <laughs> Phantasm six. Yes. 
<laughs> the, the, the name of the boy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, again, according to Phantasmic Zoom, the Agnes Scrim announced on uh, June 19th, 1992, that New Line has offered to finance two Phantasm movies to be shot back to back. September 92, Agnes Scrim announced that Don is scripting three, but feels to come up with a Phantasm Four script will be overwhelming for the winter start date. And then um, Universal has come in and and they're gonna, you know, top they topped uh, New Line's budget. And so the back-to-back New Line thing is out and he's back at Universal. And then October 1st, 1992, the first draft of Phantasm Three is done. And really quick, um, Don told Fangoria that, you know, he uh, he finished Phantasm Three script, and then he, he with the whole thing with New Line was that um, what was it? He was kind of in a dilemma where after he finished the third script, he really didn't have a, a, an idea for the fourth movie yet, and so he went to Universal, and they kind of helped him out, and so that's what kind of happened with the the New Line situation. But it would have been interesting to have like a back to back Phantasm back mm-hmm. then but you know you can totally understand it was kind of overwhelming for him to do and um 1994 agnes scrim was introduced into the fangoria hall of fame alongside i was there for that oh yeah. you were there for that oh wow uh it's, it's interesting that they were ever planning to do them back to back like that's not that was more of a baller move you made back then if you you know when they shot superman one and two together or yeah, back to the right? future two and three it was I, I can't really think of another horror movie that Dark Man two and three. Did they do those two back to back? Oh yeah, it's right. Man. It's funny you said that. I just rewatched Dark Man two uh, last night. Oh, nice. <laughs> Arnold Vosloo. I think the logic was like for the direct to VHS movies that it was cheaper because like you would just reuse mm-hmm. sets and shit and uh, yeah. all the same crew. Um, which I, you know, which I think is what Phantasm three and four always kind. I mean, I, I know Coscarelli was hoping they would get theatrical releases, but I think in terms of this, the, the you know, they were always a bit more on the VHS side of things. Yeah, because I have to is they made three. They were going to make three and four. Clearly, part two did well on VHS, mm-hmm. uh, despite not doing well in the theater. Yeah, it definitely did do well on VHS. I think that's why Universal agreed. And yeah, he said he didn't want to rush the fourth film because he needed time to figure out all the details, you know? And so, um, yeah, and then Phantasm 3 comes out May 6, 1994. But he was able to get like two short theatrical runs. And I think he, according to his book, I think he was hoping that that would help Universal see because it did very well in those two cities that Universal would want to release it uh, theatrically, but they didn't. But don't forget too, like, I guess like the early 90s, I mean, horror was kind of in a weird situation. You know, it, it like horror movies kind of, I don't want to say like they died, but it wasn't until like Scream and I Know What You Did Last Summer is when they exploded again. But we were in that weird brain. I love Brain Scan and Dr. Giggles and all those movies, but it seemed like it yeah, was like but the those tail. didn't do well. Yeah, it seemed like I, it was I would the have loved tail the end. Dr. Giggles 2 and 3 yeah. and 4. Yeah. <laughs> I think they were at the tail end of still trying to figure out what a next slasher would be and stuff yeah. like that. Horror was a little bit. I mean, I love the films from that era, but maybe, I don't know. That's just my personal take. Um, anything on a Phantasm 3, Peter, you want to talk about? Um, 
not really, but basically cover that. I, I, it's worth pointing out, it did get quite a reduced budget from the second one. The budget was about $2.5 million um, in uh, 1993 slash 1994 dollars, which is, uh, you know, adjusting for inflation. That's that's a step down from the uh, $3 million in 1987 for Phantasm uh, two. Um, again, we're picking up right where Phantasm two leaves off, which is uh, definitely setting up that, that, mm-hmm. uh, kind of staple of the franchise where, you know, age does not affect these people. It just, it just keeps rolling. Well, I think I also, I think my friends and I loved about them is it's almost like an old timey serial, you know, where your yes. hero falls off a cliff, but then the beginning of the next one, they're still clinging to the edge. Yes. It's just something horrible happens at the end of each of these movies. And then the character is just fine in the yes. next one. <laughs> Reggie keeps losing his quadruple barrel shotgun, but then just has it again. Oh, there it is. Yeah. <laughs> he, actually, he says that at one point. He goes, oh, there that thing is. It's actually, <laughs> it's at the end of Phantasm 3. He goes, oh, cool. But, you know, what's interesting, too, that made me think of a scene in Phantasm 2, just to get off track for one goofy little moment here. At the at the end of Phantasm 2, he blows four dwarves away in a single shot, which is yep. one of the best shots in the movie. <laughs> and then right after that, it cuts to Reggie and he just looks at the gun and tosses it away. And I was in the theater. I was in a theater with a guy who went, what'd you do with the gun? Well, it was out of bullets, so I threw it away. <laughs> I actually said that out loud in the theater and I went, shut up. <laughs> I, I was kind of bummed too he did throw away the gun at that point also though in the theater but. i mean i guess he was just like well i'm not going to so use cool, it in a though. cooler <laughs> moment than that so yeah I he was just cool yeah he was like i, I don't need it anymore <laughs> <laughs> he knew it would reappear it's like video game logic yeah, yeah. put his hand and behind his back, phantasm and 3, back it just shows up yeah it yep. shows up and at the beginning of phantasm 3 against a tree <laughs> <laughs> all a dream i don't know Sure. I like Phantasm 3 quite a bit. I need to rewatch Me it. Me too. I like that one a lot. I yeah. love Rocky. Yeah. He's one of my favorite characters. When she was and, featured and the, in your the comic woman book. Her, yes, yes. And that was before I met her. She actually helped us promote the, the comic at Comic-Con. Wow. Uh, I met her for the first time at Comic-Con that year, and she's a glorious, beautiful woman, too. She is just so fun and nice, and we we became fast friends. It was great. Yeah. Wait, and is the Roger Avery script, is that between three and four when that was happening? Because that was like right after Pulp Fiction, yes. wasn't it? Yeah. That, yeah. That was... It, 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 he was having a conversation with Robert right after he won, won the Oscar because he was friends with Robert and Quentin and Don, I mean. And and Robert, and he said, well, what do you want to do now that you won the Oscar, Roger? And, and, and he said, uh, I, I'd like to do a Phantasm movie. Just as I mean, you do, you know. Picked himself yeah. off the floor. He was like, "Wow, okay, sure." So they did the plague thing. They did the the epic plague chapter, which I've read, and it's great. It's really, really good. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I imagine you guys. I hope you guys do a whole episode about that script someday. I'm sure, we will at some point. But if, if you or but... Steve want to give, or anyone wants to give, a little brief yeah, synopsis I, of what that was, you know, because it, it's worth bringing it up just because it does hang over the whole. Th- franchise for the next you know decade and a half essentially because i coscarelli is always saying like yes we're going to do this next phantasm movie and then we're going to do the the roger avery script you know because it's always hoping it, it would have been an expensive but uh conclusion concluding chapter shall we say to the phantasm franchise um 
but yeah, as I said, uh, Roger Avery was the screenwriter of Pulp Fiction. He won an Academy Award. And and so then he he wrote up a, a script for this Phantasm movie called at various times, either Phantasm 1999 or uh, Phantasm 2013 or uh, Phantasm End. Um, but it would have been uh, in the same vein as what we've been talking about earlier is what it would have been uh, post-apocalyptic. The tall man had taken over large, large sections of the populace and it would have centered on uh, Reggie at uh, dual storylines would have had Reggie as one storyline and then a group of commandos as another storyline really trading off kind of the aliens uh, 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 story structure. Um, these commandos are trying to go into the, the mausoleum and, and set off a bomb that would, that would close off the dimension to the tall man uh, to the tall man's world. Um, and then Reggie concurrently is into the plague zone um, looking for Mike, uh, essentially. Um, in early versions of the script, Mike is a character. In the later versions of the script, he's not, um, for reasons uh, that uh, I imagine you guys will get into in the future episode. <laughs> but uh, uh, but yeah, that script, the reason it doesn't happen, it's a really expensive project. And um, Coscarelli is, again, he's, this is all independent filmmaking, so he's trying to find the funding himself and maintain creative control, um, which is a tough thing to do in the film industry. When I met him in 1999, he was still trying to make that movie. He had just, he had just done Phantasm Four, And I don't even think it had been released yet, Phantasm Four. But then when we did the Phantasm Film Festival, he announced that he had secured Bruce Campbell to play the leader of the Commandos. And even though that didn't happen, that led to his association with Bruce. And the very next year, they did Bubba Hotep together. So... Yeah. That, that, that was something good that came out of that. Wait, and, and not to get ahead of ourselves, but just so I don't forget, and you worked on the, I, I think it's a somewhat infamous, uh, I don't know, infamous, infamous is the right word, but well-known unmade movie that everyone wanted and still wants, which was the Baba Hotep sequel. Did you work on that? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I was the co-writer of that, yeah. Uh, we'll talk about that in a little in a sec. Yeah, we'll get to what's definitely. Yeah, sure. I mean, if you want, you want me to go into it, I will. I mean, uh, not just yet. Let's, a, keep, a, let's keep moving it, chronologically yeah, in time. We're so close. Yeah, yeah <laughs> we're, we're very close. Yeah, just I don't have much on Phantasm 4 if you want to take it, Peter, but I just have the release date of October 13th, 1998. Yeah, um, but I think the biggest thing to point out is, is, uh, Coscarelli's been trying to get the funding after three to make, to make the Roger Avery script. Can't do it. Um, so he ends up pivoting and to to make and he does is, he is able to secure the funding to do a, a very low budget um, Phantasm Four. The budget of it is six hundred fifty thousand dollars, which is uh, the lowest next to the original Phantasm, which was three hundred thousand. Um, and oddly, though, you watch it, it and because of the smaller budget, he's forced to be have a, have a bit more of a nonlinear structure to it. Um, he's reutilizing footage from the first Phantasm. And, and very and impressively scenes. too, I might yes. add not no, I, well, no spoilers. We'll get any detail, but the footage they use at the very end of that movie is that kind of thing where I'm like, I don't even understand what this would have been in the first movie. It so perfectly fits the story of four. Yeah. And it ends in a way that makes you think like this could be the end of the franchise mm -hmm. or it could be the beginning of a new franchise or it could be any number of things. And it's in some ways it is a fitting. Uh, many people at the time saw it as a fitting conclusion to the to the to the films. I really love the way four ends. And to answer question sort of in a kind of abstract way, Josh, 
or or not answer your question, but fill in the blank there on that. Um, Phantasm, the original movie, was made very differently than the other films. The other films had a script and they went and they shot it. Phantasm was a movie that evolved over quite a number of months and a year. He, he They shot many different endings. They shot a whole lot of different uh, like character moments and action scenes. And, 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 they, and the movie, I think, had at least three or four different endings at, at different points. So there was a ton of footage lying around. And so that was what became, I think, don't quote me too directly on this, but I think that became his inspiration for a great deal of what Phantasm Four became. There were some other ideas that came from other places, but uh, but that was part of it. Was that was that uh, you know you got all these spare parts lying around, you know why not use it? But like That's they great. they would they would they would cut together different versions of the movie, the original, and they would show it to audiences, you know, and they'd go back and they fucked with it for another few months. You know, it was a movie that he. He, and, and and what's interesting about it is that the final film is a symphony of filmmaking that it really feels very deliberate, but it but it, it was the product of a lot of experimentation. Yeah, it almost it's like I don't know if anyone remembers after um, Anchorman, the Will Ferrell movie was a big success. That had so many deleted scenes that they ended up editing an entirely different movie called Wake Up Ron Burgundy that they released on DVD. That's did just they really like do that? yeah, That's yeah, it's just did. like an entirely deleted scene. It has like a whole different subplot involving mm-hmm. a zoo. Uh, very interesting. Yeah, some of the scenes are in the. Un- unrated anchorman cut but yeah it's a totally different movie it, it it's crazy but it's like remember like when caddyshack <laughs> was going to get released wasn't it like close to three hours also and they had to cut out so oh yeah like yeah. The two- oh, they shot out a film on that yeah because yeah. like they, the- they, 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 were- <laughs> they should have just re-edited it rather than uh do caddyshack too yeah well i think like that. the the version of stripes that's there's like a another version of stripes that's out there that's totally different than yeah. the movie they released too yeah so it's pretty wild to think like well how- it isn't it isn't completely different well there is a version out that's that's about i think 20 minutes longer that it has a whole thing where they go on a plane and they go into the into the jungle somewhere and get involved with these natives and stuff it's weird i've seen uh, that version it's on amazon it's like extended version or whatever yeah i, I don't think it's a real director's cut or anything i think it's just a got more footage in it but i was kind of blown yeah. away because as, as as most of us can say i was a child of that age and i had mm-hmm. that movie memorized and so like like wow what is this this is a whole section of the film where they go awol and get on a plane and go on this adventure and it's completely different than everything else in the movie weird yeah, I was told to stay away from it because my, my friends were like, it's yeah. just bad, no ruin it for you. Because I mean, it's, 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 things are cut out for a reason good. a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I am. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it wasn't good. They were right to cut it out. For sure. Yeah, because like the Caddyshack thing was like the two leads, the guy and the girl, uh, they they were in it a lot more. And they're like, all right, we got to start getting rid yeah. of all them and just, you know. Need more of the gopher. Yeah, well, it's crazy how good it turned out. But but anyway, this is not Caddyshack. <laughs> We had a long Caddyshack 2 conversation last episode, so we'll step away. Uh, and that's no joke. All right. Uh, oh, Peter, you want to take it from here? Um, sure. So, I mean, that kind of brings us up to uh, the year, yeah, essentially 2000, and and the story that you started earlier about uh, Phantasmania and and then meeting Coscarelli and, and providing the scripts. I, I think what's crazy uh, not only that, it, that this worked for you, which is crazy in and of itself, but like uh, you, you say that you wrote these scripts in like three weeks or something, like some crazy short amount of time, right? That's how I've always been. I'm I'm an insane maniac. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I, I am I'm I'm driven like few people I know. Um, I, not as driven as others, obviously, but I am pretty crazy. And I knew that this was going to be a career defining moment somehow. I wasn't sure what it was going to be, but I knew that I had one chance, one chance to impress an idol of mine who I'd heard from all different sources was a pretty amenable guy as far as, you know, working with people and so on. So long as, you know, you were sincere about it and you didn't come off like a, you know, so you were trying to exploit him or whatever. But when I, 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 I didn't know when to, to, to pitch the scripts to him at all during that weekend. I had, it, I had him as my guest for a long weekend. He came on Thursday and he left on Friday or sorry, uh, on, uh, on, on uh, Sunday. And we were we got together with him and his uh, then kid uh, Andy, and we watched pay per view wrestling. <laughs> and on his literally on his way out of my you remember house, who I said, uh, well, I wrote who was wrestling? Do you remember? No, okay. not at all. They weren't really into it the way that people get into that stuff, like for the for the soap opera drama of it all. You know, I thought it was pretty cute. It was it was like their thing as father and son. It was really neat. And some of my friends came over and Eric Vespa from Ain't It Cool News came over. And, uh, you know, it was, it was, um, it was fun. And, and uh, just as he was leaving, uh, I, I, I literally pulled back a, 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 a rag or something that I had covering up the scripts on the coffee table. And I went, here, look at this. I've got the scripts I want you to read. You know, will you will you please read my screenplay, Mr. Coscarell? And he literally started backing away from me slowly. It was like, oh, no. going on? And I thought, oh no, what have I done here? And I, you know, and I just said, look, you know, I, I we we're friends now. You, you know, as much as we can be in a few days, obviously. But uh, check it out. I'm not going to sue anybody. I'm not going to get, this isn't going to be weird. You know, just do it. And maybe we can make them into a comic book series. And that was what really sold them on the idea of reading the scripts in the first place was maybe we can adapt this somehow into a comic series, or maybe there are ideas in here that, that we can mine for future projects, which they did. Um, uh, and, and, and so, you know, it, I was very honored that, that he would even consider that. So I gave him the scripts. He, he, Went away with them. There were many weeks of, of uh, happy, uh, you know, kind of, oh, my God, what a great show that was. And we exchanged emails and everything. And, and we were also, I believe it or not, I was actually trying to help him get funding for Phantasm 1999, the Roger Avery project. I knew a few financier type people and we were pitching it to them. And any possible, right? So, and Austin was rapidly becoming a very boomy film town. We didn't have the big Alamo draft house empire yet, but we had South by Southwest was coming around. You know, we had Richard Linklater and Robert Rodriguez were getting famous out of here. It was going on the map. And so it was a good place to come. And that was why Don Coscarelli even wanted to come to Austin in the first place. Ain't it cool news was a big deal at the time. And, and uh, he wanted to meet Harry Knowles and all that. And, and so, you know, it, and I remember when Angus Scrim got up to do one of his introductions during the festival, he said, uh, I talked to Shelley Coscarelli about Austin, Texas, and she told me it was a place of great intellectual ferment. <laughs> uh, intellectual ferment. ferment. Yeah, that's pretty. And he had a shiner bock in his hand, you know, which was really nice. And uh, usually he didn't last through the screenings because they were very late, and he's a very old guy. But um, he was. But they were all wonderful, and it was great. And so he 
Don eventually got back to me and he read the scripts. He said, these are great. He really liked what I came up with. And if you're interested, what I came up with was kind of Ryan kind of coming up, kind of coming up with a, a take on it that would honor our childhood memories of the dream come reality type aspect of it. And looking at it in terms of, okay, what really happened at the end of Phantasm? Does the tall man have some sort of power that makes people just sort of wake up and then suddenly it's all a dream, but then he can come back and get you? Or uh, is there something else going on? And what I came up with was the idea that, that, that there are people in our world and our reality that can change reality with the things that they dream. And the tall man is coming for them. And so this was a new idea I introduced into the mythos, right? And Don really liked that a lot and, and thought that it made it deeper and more interesting and made it more science fiction. And that was an idea that I mind when we, we went to make it into a comic series, which was much bigger and, and more epic scope because it's a comic book and you can do, you know, more with it. Was, uh, um, was Rocky's also, and- I was, I was just going to ask Rocky's in the comic. Was she also in your yeah. TV version? Okay. They all were in it in some version or another. And it, it was basically the, the concept was Mike wakes up at the beginning of the thing and you realize he's been dreaming all of the movies or has he been? You know, he's not convinced, that's for sure, which you may have noticed that they kind of did in Ravager a little bit. Um, but like, he gradually starts realizing that the things around him are things that he's been dreaming about. His doctor at the hospital where he's been in a coma for, for 30 years and an unexplained coma for 30 years is actually the tall man, his Jeb Morningside. And he's been his doctor. He's written a book about it. It's, it's this big phenomenon. And there's lots of other people who dream in these comas too. And then ultimately it all gets weird and monsters start showing up and the reality starts distorting. And they jump in and out of different realities, also sort of like in Ravager. And um, uh, in those realities are Rocky and the other characters they've encountered. I had Liz from Phantasm 2 in there. There were a bunch of things yes. that, that I called back to. <laughs> I love Liz I always so really much. loved Liz. I thought Paula Irvine was great in that movie. I had a huge crush on her. And I, I, uh, it kills me. They killed her off so quickly in number three. Right? I was just like, what the hell? Hair. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, uh, that was where I was coming from. As taking just one little step okay. back, at what point did you devise this plan that you were going to write all these scripts and give it to him? Like it sounds like you about, didn't have about the time that we we it was about the time we decided to do the film festival. <laughs> I had all these ideas, yeah, in my head for years. Every time a new Phantasm movie would come out, I would think of, okay, this is what I want the next sequel to be like, and I would write it or write a treatment for it or write a, down an idea or whatever. And then they'd make another one. I would go, okay, all right, now I gotta, okay, I gotta refigure this. And I, all right, all right, let's do this now. And by the time we got to Phantasm Four, um, I had come up with kind of where I would reposition all of my ideas for that. And as you just heard, my idea is, ba- is, is a way of having, that could fit really anywhere. You know, he, he basically wakes up and they tell him, sorry, kid, it was all a dream, but we all know that ain't gonna last, right? So. Basically, I just took all the ideas that I had and and my almost desperate need to get noticed by somebody, anybody in the film business. Um, and uh, I threw that all together and somehow I found the time to write all. And there were there were 60 minute scripts. There were three of them. And 
I just, you know, put the throttle down as hard as I could. I rode all night and crashed at dawn. And then I got up two hours later and we started working on the film festival promotion again. Tim League was running the Alamo hands-on at the time. And so he did a lot of the work for getting the Phantasm Film Festival together. I got all my friends together. We, I put my friend Joe in charge of Space Gate security. And I, <laughs> I gave him a t-shirt that said, I'm with the tall man. Anything you got to say to him, say to me first. And so he was, he was, he was Angus's bodyguard. Hard, you know, and we just we were just these crazy kids putting on this crazy show in Texas. It was weird, you know. We just somehow had carte blanche to do it, and that was just because I met Reggie at a Fangoria convention. I was introduced to him by Sean Lewis, who who I was working with on that Beyond project I was telling you about, and a couple of other things too. Sean Lewis is an amazing cat who used to run Rotten Cotton uh, Graphics. Well, he still does, but I mean, it, it's kind of gone away a little bit, but. You know, he was a T-shirt guy and a, and a guy everybody knew at the, at the, you know, and everybody wanted to be friends with. And he just introduced me that that was in 98. That was when I really met the horror world. And I, I was in a, and I realized what the secret was of, of, of meeting your heroes at these things. You don't stand in line for autographs. You go to the bar. <laughs> and you buy them drinks. <laughs> That's what you do. I bought yeah. Reggie drinks all night long. <laughs> And, and, and Bill Thornberry and, and Michael Baldwin and all those guys came over and they sat with us all night. And we drank and we had a great time. And Reggie played guitar. And it was really a lot of fun. And Tom Savini was suddenly sitting right next to us and all this. And I mean, you got to remember, you know, I mean, I'm 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 28 years old and I'm, I've only been to a few of those shows in the first place. And I was never sort of in inside like that. And. So it was great. And, and uh, uh, then, uh, then but I'd never really got to know Don. You know, I didn't really meet him that that weekend, but but then I realized I was, and 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 Peter, I just devised this crazy plan, to to sort of kickstart my career at a time when I really needed somebody to believe in me. And Don, again, was sort of master of his own destiny and was always developing some crazy project. And because of what happened on the Phantasm comic book, as he went off in in the year two thousand. Uh, and one, and he made Bubba Hotep while I was doing the first issue of Phantasm, the comic series. I literally visited him on the set of, of Bubba Hotep and brought him the first issue. And I said, you know, the finished art and everything, it wasn't published yet, but I brought it to him and I gave it to him and he really, really liked it a lot. And when we finally published it about a year later at, at San Diego, where I got to meet Gloria Lynn Henry and all that, um, he took me aside, he bought me dinner and he said, okay, what do you, do you want to help me write the next Phantasm movie or what? That's amazing. <laughs> wow. And you were That's like, funny. let I, me I, think I was looking about around it. for cameras, you know? <laughs> I was like, am I being punked? Or this is this is crazy. Wow. And that wasn't just that. He would always he would always call me up when he had something to do. Like they, we were going to do a movie called Escape from Freak Mansion at one point that David Hartman was going to direct. This was his crazy idea. The guy that eventually directed Ravager, uh, which is Phantasm uh, 5, of course. Um, Wait, that what was, was the crazy. premise of that movie? It was going to have Bruce Campbell in it as a real estate agent who's trying to sell a house full of freaks. <laughs> <laughs> we are going to hit pause right here and pick up the conversation in part two of our series about unmade phantasm installments. We'd like to thank our guests, Stephen Romano and Peter and Ryan from Best TV Never Made. We encourage you to follow us on Twitter at Never Made Film and Instagram at Best Movies Never Made. You should also download the Electric Now app to watch video of our podcast and video of Best TV Never Made. We'd like to thank everyone here at the Electric Surge Network, including Bill Ritter and our producers, Mark A. 
Altman and Dean Devlin. Until next time, this is Josh Miller and Steve Scarlatta saying we won't see you at the movies. This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.